This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. As the world is moving from the fossil energy era to the renewable energy era, Beyond Zero Emissions, which is a not-for-profit research and education organisation, is developing blueprints to show the way forward. Our reports on each sector of the economy show how transport, land use, industry, exports and regional communities can all reduce carbon emissions to zero and go beyond. This show broadcast every Monday at 5pm, interviews community leaders, thinkers and doers. Our podcasts are available at BZE Podcasts. They tell a brave story of big thinking and commitment to a safe climate. Much of it is below the radar of the mainstream media and there is an archive there of the developing thinking in Australia, both at the political level, in economics and in our culture, to show how we are developing. A lot of it is very heartening. And as things sometimes change very quickly and you wonder how come, go and listen to our podcast because you will see the underpinning in our culture of great thinkers. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show and Salut Babette. You're listening to 3CR, but this show was recorded in Sydney at Skid Row Radio. And many thanks to Huna and Chris, who helped me, ma- helped me and made it such a pleasure to record. I also loved speaking to these two very venerable and respected members of our community. Helena Norberg Hodge is from Sweden originally, and she lives part of the year here. She has also spent 15 years in Ladakh, where she formed the idea that localization is the way forward. Globalization is costing us too much in emissions, it's too wasteful, and she has pioneered many ideas in Australia too about relocalizing our economy. Then we'll speak to Dr. David Shearman, who listeners will remember we've talked to him a lot about Port Augusta and uh, the efforts there to, to make the transition. But today we're talking to him about gas and its bad effects on health and its terrible effects on the climate, as well as Going back a little bit to his experience in World War Two, where he remembered the politicians of those days being on the radio all the time, urging people and supporting people to make a war effort. They did victory gardens, they sacrificed their pots and pans for metal. It's not really like that for climate change, but we do need leaders who are on our side to make the transition to renewable energies and all of that. So I hope you enjoy this on Easter Monday and that it is a very deep deep experience for you. Helena Norberg-Hodge spoke at the 2019 Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne. Her theme was how moving from globalisation to localisation, we can eliminate huge amounts of transport emissions, for example. She is a Swedish linguist by training who studied with Noam Chomsky, so I'm expecting her to be a great activist as well. Uh, She's now an advocate for a new economics, and we are very honoured to bring Helena to you listeners because she received what is considered the alternative Nobel Peace Prize 
It's called the Right Livelihood Award, and this was together with the Ladakh Ecological Development Group. So let's start with Ladakh. I always wanted to go there, and I waited in Kashmir for several weeks in 1986, and I had a plane ticket, but the clouds never cleared, and so I've always dreamed of that isolated Tibetan-style culture way up in the Himalayas, and Helena actually has lived there, and her book Ancient Futures is a marvellous thing to read, listeners. You find it in the library, in the bookshop, or um, you, you must read it. It's uh, it's about how she learned things from Ladakh and she sees them as a sort of community, unique in that they had been isolated for so long and were perfectly self-sufficient until influx of tourism and commercialism and trade. And it's a magnificent account of life up there. It's been translated into 25 languages. So thank you, Helena, for coming on our show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Well, look... Um, would you just talk to us about Ladakh first, what it looked like when you first went there and how the people maintained themselves without imports and in harmony for so many centuries? Yeah, well, it was um, high up on the Tibetan plateau, part of Tibet culturally, but it belonged politically to India. And so even when the Chinese came into central Tibet, Ladakh had been left untouched. Uh, in fact, the Indian army had surrounded it with army to prevent anyone from going in there for political reasons. But then in 1975, they were throwing it open to tourism, and they had started a process of development. Um, and I came in as one of the first foreigners. I was only going to stay for six weeks. I was hoping to make a film, but I totally fell in love with the people and the place. I was absolutely amazed at the remarkably high standard of living. You know, they had these three-story white-painted houses with carved balconies and and amazing clothing, all of it made with their own hands and their own wool and their own natural dyes. And um, I also, you know, saw the sort of healthiest, strongest and most vital people I had ever met. So I ended up staying when the film was finished. I was going to work on a PhD on the language, and I've, I've walked through the whole area. It's quite a big region, about the size of Austria, um, but small villages in what is essentially a high-altitude desert at about 11,000, 12,000 feet high and surrounded by high glaciers, you know, the high Himalaya, and they would irrigate the desert with the glacial meltwater, and so in the summer especially, it was just the most magnificent landscape with these brilliant green fields and, you know, in the desert and, mm. and the high, beautiful mountains. And, yeah, it was just probably <laughs> the most visually beautiful landscape and architecture I'd ever seen, and then these remarkable people. Mm. Something that I liked in your book was a chapter called We Have to Live Together, and you notice that they have a very interesting way of resolving any conflict. A sort of a mediator appears out of out yeah. of the crowd, and, and even it might be a small child, but anything is settled, and the two parties talk to the third person and settle it. And it's well, all. I think a lot of that comes from after many years. I came to realize that children were never segregated into separate age groups as <laughs> we do in schools here. Yeah. So they grew up in this intergenerational way and in a very close way, you know, so 
every mother had about 10 caretakers for every child in every household. And so, yeah, usually it would be, you know, the older child telling the five or the three-year-old, you know, sort of helping them to prevent any conflict. But sometimes I saw even, you know, a teenage boy mediating between an older woman and, and a salesman. and. Yeah. So, yeah, I call it the spontaneous intermediary, you know, and that comes partly from living much more closely together and in a much more human-scale, interdependent economy rather than distant institutions and big bureaucracies, you know, where we don't know each other. That's right. Something that comes across through all of your writings is this thing of scale, that our problem is now we're trying to resolve climate change with this international, you know, Paris Agreement or these COP meetings, Thousands of people go there, all experts, all vying with each other, and I've never met anyone who was really satisfied with that process because it's impersonal, it's very hard, it's very competitive. What is it in localism? How is it that we... No, no, we can't all go back to being in isolated communities. Even the Ladakhis are not isolated anymore, but how can we get smaller-scale decision-making so that we can... I I would say, you know, I think it's not at all right now about going back into isolation. It's exactly the opposite, really. We need a more global understanding to be really informed about what's going on, but we will not get that information from the mainstream media, Hmm. and so we don't get to hear about insane trade. We just get the finger pointed at us, and we feel guilty and desperate. Well, this is the alternative media, so we're getting up in a different way. Yeah, wonderful. It is so important. Look, when climate change first became obvious as a threat, I heard many people talking about the transition to renewable energy, and they would say, look, it won't be a hair shirt. It's not as if decarbonizing will force us to live in a primitive way. But now it seems clear to me that we will have to at least stop flying and stop wasting so much fuel on sending goods all around the world. You've just given examples of that. And I think it's time for sacrifices. Or do you think there's another way to look at it? Well, I do think there is another way. I Tragically, with that swing to the right, we're, we're in a great danger of not being able to do what we need to do. So I think the most important thing you can do in community radio is to try to get an honest discussion out there which puts climate change in the context of the global economic system that threatens livelihoods as well as our very survival. The main message to ordinary people that, well, you have to sacrifice it's not really right. You see, I'm I'm just now writing a book called Local is Our Future, and I'm talking there about how pervasive the arguments are that keep pointing the finger at the individual consumer, telling them that they are to blame, they have to sacrifice, they have to do this, they have to do that, and they're, and they're trapped often, running faster and harder than ever before, just to pay for the mortgage, just to pay for health care and education. So we really, again, need the bigger picture. And then my message to people is, no, this is not about sacrifice. If you were more informed about how much you have sacrificed in terms of time, one of the most precious things of all, 
time to enjoy your children, to be able to have friends, community, to be able to listen to your own heart, to your own values, be in touch with yourself. If you knew how much you've sacrificed, you would realize that what we're talking about in this localization movement is a way of slowing down and human-scale interactions that will make your life so much more fulfilling and enjoyable. Yes, well, you said we need to educate ourselves, and I feel very unsure, very uneducated about, for example, why is local food more expensive than food from a high, from that has a huge carbon footprint imported from a long way away? Garlic, for example, from Mexico yeah. and Sydney, and yeah. the Ladakis noticed that their local butter had suddenly become very expensive compared to the imported butter that was flown over those mountains into them. Exactly. I'm so glad, you know, you asked that question because... You know, this is another of the many, many facts we would like people to really look at. But in order to look at it, they do need to see how this is going on around the world. And what is going on is that, yes, almost without any exception, food from further away will cost less than local food. Food laden with chemicals, wrapped in triple layers of plastic, etc., etc., will cost less than food that doesn't have the chemicals, that doesn't have the plastic, We have been subject to an economic system that has not been telling us the truth. But how do they do it? How? distorted prices. How do they actually make a profit? I mean, I also wonder about cheap flights. How do they do it? The way it's operating now is that for a long time, and this has been going on, is that governments have been led to believe that trade is always an improvement. And so the entire economic system has been perverted to support import and export rather than supporting more local self-reliance, even local, regional, or national self-reliance. Why shouldn't most countries drink their own water or even drink their own milk or produce their own grain, their own animal products, whatever? They could and they should, and we would massively reduce emissions. But no, we have policies that for generations have been geared to supporting trade and the big traders. The big traders are also banks, and the banks have been deregulated more and more to have the freedom to literally make money out of thin air, used to prop up the Monsantos, the Coca-Colas, the Adanis, to run mega projects that are so inefficient, so expensive. But they have all this make-believe money, and they don't pay taxes, and they have no regulations because they operate within a free trade regime, which gives them freedom. In the meanwhile, the average business in every country is regulated and pays taxes. And they're squeezed for taxes, and they're squeezed with regulations, many of which were either meant for big business they don't touch them, or they were actually brought in because big business lobbied government to bring them in. Well, climate change is forcing us all to think a lot harder, those of us who are thinking. And I thought energy was treated very well in your book. And you talked about the traditional cooking 
method, which is a lot in the third world. I've been in Timor, for example, and those little wood-burning or charcoal-burning stoves are making the people very sick. There's a lot of tuberculosis there, plus the soot from those little stoves all over the uh, poorer part of the world are forcing climate change. Your soot is a force of climate change. And I'd like you to tell us a bit something on the positive side. What did what was achieved in Ladakh about getting solar cookers and passive solar energy to heat their homes? Well, this is yeah. We we um, introduced this and we found that you know with the solar solar greenhouses also it's been an amazing effect because it's prolonged the growing season from about four months a year to almost eight, ten months a year, so that they can have fresh green vegetables much longer. Solar ovens are a bit like, you know, slow cookers, which are very popular these days. makes cooking very easy. It's slow, but you just put it in the morning, and then later in the day or the evening it's ready. And we introduced something called a trom wall, which is a passive solar system where you have glass in front of a wall, painted black and it's remarkable how much you can do by just orienting houses in Australia would be to the north you know to make use of the sun when it's cold and it's so elegant because when it's hot in the summer the sun is high in the sky so then it doesn't heat up mm. but then when the autumn comes and the sun goes lower in the sky you get more of the sun's rays Decentralizing in terms of our use of natural resources is vital. Centralizing in terms of our commitment internationally to work together to protect the environment and to protect human rights, that is necessary. But we so urgently need to distinguish between those activities. The activities of how do we as humans use nature, which is the economy, how do we make use of nature to feed ourselves, to build our houses, to meet all our needs, to find energy? And that is a completely different activity from the activity of cooperating globally to protect our environment and to protect human rights. Mm-hmm. Helena Norberg-Hodge spoke at the 2019 Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne. Her theme was how moving from globalisation to localisation, we can eliminate huge amounts of transport emissions. Farmers are suffering, and you've said that the global market is the main driver of climate change because it forces deforestation, plastic waste, ecocide, and plus all these food miles, as you've said. Plus, it makes the people who produce the food feel insecure and suicidal. And I'd like to know what regulations at the global level you are now seeing would help us value farmers more. I noticed even in the National Geographic, which is not a very left-wing paper, but it, it, it had an article saying if small farmers are producing more per hectare than industrialised large farms... Wow, I'm why? amazed that National Geographic yes. and that tell me. October, Thank you for telling me. October 2018, I just saw it. Another sign, by the way, that I, that does make me feel hopeful is Good. that the sort of yeah. awareness is trickling upwards. So many of these uh, mainstream institutions and even media, as you just pointed out, are beginning to tell the truth. But it's very late. You know, we've just got to hurry uh, up and yes. get this out yeah. rapidly. Small, diversified farms will always be able to produce more per acre of land, per unit of water, 
than any monoculture ever can do. Even if you pumped it full of fertilizers and all every kind of fungicide, pesticide, insecticide, you would not be able to produce more than a piece of land that has diversity. Can I just stop you there? Because I think that's counterintuitive. We don't see that playing out in the... You travel up and down Australia and you just see these huge farms. Yeah. It seems that everyone has accepted that that produces much better. Everyone's talking about, oh, climate change, we're going to have to feed 9 billion people. How are we going to do it? Well, the obvious answer is to pump the land more. Yeah. And I feel that it's counter people don't quite get it so can you explain how yes, those small absolutely. farms really do it's produce the most important issue i would say because just think of it think if you just in your garden you know if you had some fruit trees and you had some trees that also maybe provided wood that you could trim off for your rocket stove if you had you know very much along the permaculture model you also had bushes with some fruit. Ideally, you would also have some animals, maybe rabbits, maybe ducks, maybe goats, maybe even a cow or two. But in a diversified small system, those animals never compete with humans. They eat waste, and they produce valuable products. They produce labor. They produce fertilizer. So in these diversified family farms... They can produce vastly more, but we're talking about really, you know, in many cases, 10 times even more than a monoculture. So if you just did the experiment yourself, you know, on two square meters of land or something, and one of them you planted only one thing, and the other one you did diversity, you would inevitably be able to do more where you have diversity. But you need, usually, for this to work well, you can't have a giant big machine that is, um, you know, um, spraying and fertilizing and, and a harvesting machine that picks everything and that will pick the apples before they're ripe and then burn, you know, in this global system, half of them will be burned. Mm. No, here you're talking about more people, more livelihoods, more jobs for people, and you're talking about jobs that... Really, there is a growing, it's small, but it's a rapidly growing movement of young people who are turning to farming. They actually are finding that the high-tech job in front of a computer in the high-rise in the city is not good for their bodies, it's not good for their minds, it's not good for their souls, and they are seeking um, training in organic farming and permaculture and now more and more of them are realizing that the local food economies are that allow them to do this small-scale farming, diversified farming, and have a market that supports that diversity. Well, I don't like to contradict you, but I, I sort of feel, I still feel it's counterintuitive. Like, I don't know what percentage, but it's probably about 70% of people live in the big cities. They live in high-rise, they live in small places with nowhere to grow anything maybe a balcony but this is like my family joke to me they say oh we're sustainable in parsley but you know i'm not feeding the family from the stuff i can grow in my little little house so you know i think we've gone to that stage Uh, it's it doesn't doesn't we still do have Coles and Woolworths. We still do have these big um, purveyors of food. We still are time poor, and we've got a very short time to turn climate change around. So, in the you know the land sector, I don't see how can we do it with those. Yeah, I guess you know probably the problem with the way I'm expressing it is by contrasting 
you know, the very small with the very big, it sounds like suddenly, you know, everything would be turned into the very small. No. No, I think you're reminding me also to say this more clearly in the book, that what we really have to look at is where we are today and look at the truth of what is more productive and what isn't. Then we want to immediately turn policies. We want to turn funding and regulations to favor more diversified instead of even bigger monocultures. We want to immediately stop the import and export of the same product. Why should Australia export wheat to Europe and import wheat from Europe? Just think of how easy it would be to stop importing and exporting the same product. Who would suffer from that? Mainly would be the big finance speculators and the giant uh, corporations that actually employ very few people in contrast to the multitude whose livelihoods are being destroyed. So, you you know, it's a question of where do we go from here? Do we start moving towards even bigger and longer distances and more plastic and more CO2 emissions? Or do we start moving towards supporting more people and encouraging smaller local production? What I just want to give you as a bit of yeah. evidence is that when I first started promoting local in Australia in 99, I was told in Melbourne and in Byron Bay and in Sydney, it's not going to happen here, Helena. The farms are big. People want their strawberries in winter. It's not going to happen. Well, every day I hear of new initiatives in all of those places. And it's happening from the big city. It's not because everybody in the city is suddenly growing their own food. It's because there is a farming movement supported by consumer awareness. And all of that happened without any support from academia, from the media, from government. No support, basically. So it's remarkable how much has happened without support. If you could imagine putting the the billions of dollars that are actually going to support the infrastructure for satellites and robotized um, tractors, replacing, you know, people with robots, using more and more energy, more synthetic food. If you imagine those trillions, actually, ultimately, going into supporting genuinely healthy, more natural ways, I think it's quite, you know, remarkable what could happen. Just to end again on the big picture, and I must say to you, since reading your book, and I've known about this for years, but I have now made a vow to find out where I can get locally delivered vegetables, and there's a group near me called Let Us Deliver Lettuce, so I'm going to do that. But I had to search around the internet, but I'm sure many listeners would know of these food box deliveries, so I can get locally produced food quite easily if I try. So it's just a matter of deciding to do it, I think. But I want to finish on the big picture because that's what where you are urging us to be big picture activists. And I, I just come back to one of my favourite interviews, which was with a Bangladeshi climate scientist called Dr. Salim Ulhaq. And it was just after the 
people had come across from Myanmar, you know, refugees flooding in, and I think it was over half a million people suddenly in Bangladesh, and they just took them in. They had to take them in. He said we took them in. And he just had such a lot of compassion. But then he started talking about climate criminals. He said, I just have to call out these corporations, these 100 top corporations, which are climate criminals. And he said they receive trillions in fossil fuel subsidies and they are more powerful than national governments. Now, I just don't have the economic literacy to deal with this. I can't understand this or where you would start to attack it or dismantle it. What are your thoughts? Well, this is partly I've been part of groups of economists and journalists and activists around the world who have been increasingly pointing out that this is what's happening. And so the main thing is for us to really understand from the big picture that through so-called free trade treaties, which all sounds very friendly and nice, and we think of it as being relationships between countries, Australia exporting to China and to Korea and importing things from Korea. Actually, these treaties are being driven by global banks and corporations that are telling governments that they mustn't do anything that's going to reduce their profit-making potential. This is completely anti-democratic. It's also the main reason behind the major environmental problems we have and the job insecurity. Because all the time this path is one that requires more and more energy, more and more resources, and provides fewer and fewer jobs. So we really, if we step back and look at the big picture, when we look at the global negotiations, we see that's precisely where we should be saying immediately we want those global treaties to have civic society at the side. We want to know what's going on there. In my native country of Sweden, a couple of years ago, they created a law to say that trade treaties should be negotiated in secrecy, not through evil intention probably, but because they believe that the trade really does help Sweden and it helps Swedish corporations. The truth is that it doesn't. And the truth is, and I, you know, there are economists from Harvard, you know, Stanford, from Oxford, there are people who should be respected, who have been writing about this and trying to alert people, but a corporate-dominated media has not let people know about these books and, and the, you know, the truth of what's going on. And it's, I think mainly what I see is that the majority of politicians, businessmen, media, they just are enthralled to just words to do with free trade, and they believe growth is essential. Just like you said, you know, to feed the world, we need bigger and bigger farms, we need bigger and bigger supermarkets. That's the sort of foundation belief that then leads into this blind growth mentality. And once you start deconstructing it, it becomes very clear that it, it is a lie, it's an illusion. So I hope, you know, I hope people will look at our, our website. We just produced a short, funny little film called Insane Trade, that I hope people will look at. And um, okay, tell remember us one thing, too, and that is yeah. that awareness, that waking up could happen very quickly. Information can spread quickly if we use our alternative channels. And, and, and I also, like I said earlier, I do feel so encouraged by the, 
the local food movement that has grown so rapidly without any support. And I just think that with the big picture activism, with a bit of support through awareness raising, things could escalate very rapidly. Mm. Well, I, well, the friend of our program is called Babette, and she lives in the country, and she said to me, what is it, the Sustainable Living Festival, you're telling me about three Swedish women. That was you and then Maya Rosen, who told us to stay on the ground, and Greta Thunberg, who was such a, that little child who came from the side and just said, think differently, and now look at a million people marching for the student strike. So we're very grateful to uh, whatever Sweden has given you, <laughs> plus Noam Chomsky well, and Ladakh. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and thank you so much for doing community radio. Oh, it's so important. Thank you very much. So we've been speaking to Helena Norberg-Hodge, and um, her website is Local Futures. And what is the film that... Uh, the film uh, is Insane Trade, which you can find on the website. Oh, yes, but there was that other one about Ladakh. What's that called? Well, I would love people to look at the more important film. It's a bit over yeah. an hour. It's called The Economics of Happiness. This evening we're talking to Dr. David Shearman. He's the Emeritus Professor of Medicine at Adelaide University and I would say he has learned the hard way how hard it is to get system change. Um, it's due to him and many allies that we have seen Port Augusta phase out coal-fired power and bring in large-scale solar energy. It's coming it's in the pipeline, and if you remember our program about that, Dr. Shimon told us how important the doctor's voice was in getting that changeover. But now we're going to talk really big picture. We're facing a climate emergency, but we're not acting like it's World War Three. So welcome, David, to the program. And Hello, good to talk with you again. I'm pleased to hear your voice. And I read one of your articles where you remembered the sacrifices people made when you were a child during World War Two, could you tell us how they behaved, how general people behaved, your family and people they knew? Well, everybody had to be involved. And um, I've related an episode whereby uh, one day the family, our family living in a street of houses with um, iron rails, waking in the morning to find the fence gone. And it had been cut down in the national interest at the behest of Lord Beaverbrook, I think it was, uh, who was the munitions minister, taken away to build munitions. And a day or two later, a van driver arrived, knocked at each house, and accepted all the pots and pans that mothers could produce. I remember many of them were treasured pots and pans delivered by my mother, who was quite poor, and she looked joyous in handing them over. I really couldn't understand what was going on because I was a very young child at the time. In fact, the nation, the nation of listening to Churchill and ministers who were on the radio every week were responding to the whole nation taking part in the war effort. So no matter what you did in terms of your occupation, helping the government with metal, digging up your garden and planting potatoes, whatever you think needed to be done, you were encouraged and expertise and help offered. What I was saying is it has to be like this with climate change. It's no good saying, oh, yes, isn't that interesting? Everybody, everybody 
has to be involved, not just in Australia, but around the world, because we're not winning. Well, I think climate change is going to force us to act for the common good. Eventually we'll see our common need to do something strong about it. But I would like to see rationing of carbon-intensive activities like flying. We had a program last week about quite a people... A lot of people around the world are stopping flying, you know, as a grassroots yes, yes. impetus to to stop that. It's not even included in the Paris Agreement, flying and uh, ship, shipping. I'd like people to have rationing of excessive heating and cooling, but we need leaders to explain such big exactly, programs. Exactly, I agree. Leaders no longer get on the television or the radio and explain to the ordinary person really why it's necessary to do X, Y or Z. Just don't have this common touch. And the, the big mistake that Macron made recently was in relation to diesel fuel. He put up the price and never explained to the population that diesel fuel was bad for the health, was bad for climate change. And furthermore, it was a carcinogen, and he was doing this in the national interest. He never explained that. He just put it up as a tax increase. Now, we know what it ended up in. It's ended up in millions of dollars worth of damage from rioting, which has gone on week after week, because it precipitated the sort of problems that community have as belts are being tightened. And indeed, belts are being tightened because budgets are being eroded by climate change. That's the problem. Yes, well, today uh, the ALP launched its uh, new policy for the coming uh, federal election, climate policy, and it doesn't mention the export of fossil fuels. It's a sort of gaping thing that's just not included, uh, including gas, which will be fracking from the Northern Territory quite soon. And I sort of feel... I'm tired of this. I'm tired of leading up to elections and people put out one policy and then the other people put out another policy, which is kind of directly opposite, seemingly. But then we have business as usual when it gets after the election. And I feel we need a government of national unity. And if we had that, what do you think the leadership would look like? Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure how many of the present leaders would be included in that, actually. I know. <laughs> I think that's a... That's a problem. You need different sorts of leaders. But you're quite right in what you say. And just let me clarify, there's, there's no tax fuel export of fuel. Because, in fact, there is, a, in the international agreement, it's called the scope three emissions. We are not responsible. The country actually burning the gas or coal is responsible. So it's in their emissions. But I, I don't see that as acceptable. I think that there has to be penalties on those countries producing a lot of fossil fuels, or there really is no incentive for anybody to stop. They possibly export it at a rate cheaper than it, it should be, because all the pollution and illness and deaths that it's causing here is not included in the cost. No. So, so in fact, they're getting away with it, whatever happens. So I agree with you on that. As a doctor, what do you... Would you like to tell leaders, you know, if they consulted you, you know, people in the medical profession who have the big picture of how all of the climate change impacts on people, not only that, but on biodiversity, on everything, what would you like to tell those sort of leaders like Trump who attack environmental protections? Even Australia, we have very weak environmental protections, which will give us more air pollution, more climate change and more sick children and adults. What would you tell them? Well, I don't think I would spend time on Trump because he's totally impervious to reason or truth. 
I think Trump's the one person in the world why he would have to be isolated from bothering to do anything because he will never learn. What would I tell what would I tell our leaders? Well, I would first ask them if they've got children. And if they've got children, then bluntly I can tell them they're failing in their duty. Because as somebody who knows client science, I I know that we're not going to keep control to two degrees rise on present policies in this country or many others. And many climate scientists believe, although they don't like to say publicly, that we're heading for three or four. And I imagine how catastrophic that would be around the world with sea level rise, a rapid increase in extreme weather events that are costing billions around the world, and have recently cost two, two, two and a quarter billion in Australia. So, I mean, the cost to society will be enormous, and I think they've got to understand that. And they've got to understand what sort of world their children will be living in. And it's no good talking about economics to the community or to anyone else because, and I heard this said today by Mr. Morrison, the cost of what Labour is purporting to do is tremendous and it will harm the budget. Well, this is nonsense. The cost of not doing these things is much greater. And we're going to cost, we're going to incur costs, but they're going to be from the climate change itself. So those are the problems. Mm-hmm. That I, I really haven't found is any one of them, perhaps apart from some of the independents who are prepared to get their mind around what this really means and what they have to do. It's just too difficult. Well, I think honourable exceptions with some of the Greens and we have Dr. Karen Phelps in Sydney. She she made a, quite a strong stand on climate and got that got her into Parliament. So maybe there are a oh, few. Absolutely. Yep. And I mentioned independence and, and she and some others. My member is uh, Rebecca Sharkey. She is also excellent in this regard. That's right. um, I just note in... <laughs> One of her recent releases, because we're fighting oil drilling in the Bight, it will be catastrophic for South Australia. Oh, yes, Victoria uh, too. She, 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 has, uh, she has already written to all the members of Parliament in Norway, pointing out what this would cause, and asking their company, owned by the government, to desist. Hmm. Now, this is the sort of thing, cumulative impact, has an effect, because, in fact, the same company wants to develop other issues in Australia, such as renewable energy. And clearly, it's not in their interest in the long run to alienate the community, and this needs to be pointed out to the Norwegian government. And indeed it is, because of an independent member. Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 94198377 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your love, 3CR. This evening we're talking to Dr. David Shearman. Well, look, we started thinking about the Second World War, but I think climate change is an even more complex 
problem than a world war. It is unprecedented for all of us. And you ask leaders to study Fiona Stanley's report, a recent report called No Time for Games, and you ask them to urgently meet leading climate scientists for briefings. I think that's one step is that what what would that do to change the leadership say we had a national government of national unity where it wasn't the party policies anymore it was a let's fight climate change let's survive type mantra halfway there was a government of national unity i think you're halfway there because to do that is such a huge step for australia and australian politics it would dictate the fact that they meant to do something I mean, they literally would find it so difficult in themselves and party-wise and so on to do that. We know that they would mean business, and then they might start accepting uh, scientific advice. And the real problem is Parliament has not accepted scientific advice on many, many things that are relevant. For example, on the Murray, they haven't accepted scientific Mm -hmm. advice. They, They haven't asked for independent advice to develop their plan. And whatever happens in future... They still haven't done that when a new plan is to be drawn up. So it's a huge step for them. And anybody speaking to parliamentarians like you or the people who listen to you should raise this with them, that it is a measure of such moment that they have to, they have to consider it a national emergency and they have to bring in the experts to brief them almost on a weekly basis. Yes. Well, you mentioned the Murray-Darling, and I think the fish dying this year, uh, more people have spoken to me about that than anything else, even more than the coral bleaching. You know, it seems to have touched people. Fish, these 100-year-old fish that have survived, all sorts of things, have just gone belly up in the river. And I think the doctors for environment... The doctors for the environment group that you're a part of is calling for a new independent national agency to deliver effective climate policy to prevent that sort of thing. And I would just like to look at one small aspect of that, say land clearing, which has tripled in New South Wales just recently. And I'd like to know what a national group like that with survival in mind and health foremost would do about, for example, the continued destruction of trees. Well, you need a structure to, to almost dictate this. The appeal lawyers recommended a sustainability commission and an environmental protection authority, and they would both have security. In other words, uh, they'd, be, they'd be rather like the Reserve Bank, which changed the interest rate, even if the government didn't agree with it being changed. So it would have, it would have legal authority within the nation. And only when you've got that authority can you overrule some of the ridiculous decisions to clear land by laissez-faire or by undercover dictator or whatever. Legally, too. Yes, legally they would stop land clearing. Mm. And that's absolutely essential for biodiversity, as you know, stopping erosion, ensuring that fossil fuels aren't released into the air, so many reasons why that has to stop. It can only be done, in my view, looking at the way some of the states operate by an authority which is sanctioned by the federal government but not beholden to it. The federal government may disagree with some of the things it puts forward, but it has to happen in order to save these things. Right. Well, another another part, staying with the land for the moment, in one of your articles you quoted Jonas Salk, whose polio vaccine 
pre- prevented thousands of deaths. And, yes, you know, he said, uh, it was quite a witty quote, he said, if all the insects on Earth disappeared, within 50 years, all life on Earth would disappear. Yes, yes. Um, do you think the decline of insect population, like the fish in the Murray-Darling, do you think we, we're now knowing, uh, sort of just subliminally for a lot of people, but people are starting to realise the insect populations are diminishing, and especially when we think of pollinators, do you think that will wake us up to our dependence on a safe climate? You're right. But the thing to understand, Vivian, is that the things that we've been talking about are all linked. The ma- a major cause of the insect rise is the climate change itself. They just don't adapt to the heat. The inclement and changing weather is rather like the bats in Queensland falling dead off the trees. I mean, they've not experienced these temperatures before. Same applies to insects. They just cannot cope beyond their normal range of what they've expected for thousands of years and what they're born to survive in. They can't, they can't go further than that. So insects, I, I just have a feeling that the decline in insects and biodiversity will come ahead of the disasters of climate change, which will wreak havoc, havoc around the world. They'll, they'll lead the way. And the reason perhaps they will lead the way if we don't do something is the first thing that they will hate is food production. As you say, it's not just the pollinators, though. It's many other aspects of production. Uh, Literally, the heat is changing the ecosystems in soils, and they're not going to be as productive. In addition, add more climate change extreme events to that, as has been going on in Queensland, and you can see what the two together can do. There is havoc in food production. So it may well be that that is the first thing that hits us before rising sea level in 100 years' time. Mm-hmm. Gulf's big cities. So it's all tied up together. And I don't think anybody in national governments understands this. They're so imbued with economic policy and balancing budgets and whatever. There will be no budget to balance. It's spending it all on infrastructure repair, escalating food prices, retrieving or trying to retrieve land that's damaged, etc. That's the issue. And it's putting that through to parliamentarians. Because if you say that, without them studying it for a few days and looking at facts, they think you're mad if you go into their offices and just say that. Look, I don't really know how ideas are disseminated. A lot of people depend on social media. A lot of people depend on the mainstream media. I really rather prefer meeting people and talking to people face-to-face. And when I was in Adelaide uh, just before Christmas at the ALP Fringe Conference, I didn't go to the main conference. I just went to all the fringe events that were related to climate. I met some Aboriginal people from the Northern Territory somewhere in the middle of their south of Catherine. Really, I looked on the map, extremely remote place. And the moratorium on fracking for gas had just been lifted and I know huge profits will be made if they drill that and uh, pipe it out overseas. And I spoke also to Professor Melissa Haswell just yesterday at Gloucester, and she told me that the climate impact of all that exported gas will make parts of the Northern Territory completely unlivable. If you're in Darwin, you just not even air conditioning will make it manageable to live there. It'll be just too hot all the time. And I know you've published a paper with her, and I thought, could you just sketch out that connection between exported climate change through gas and local health? 
She told us all about the local impacts of the gas, but could you tell us about the climate impact on yes, health? Well, yes, certainly. I think it's a, it's a very important study, and it hasn't really hit the headlines yet because people are talking about coal and everything else. But um, having spent a couple of months studying this intently to write this report with Melissa, it's my belief that gas is very likely much more dangerous than coal for fossil fuels. And that, that would shock most people when I say that. And it is more dangerous because there are so many leaks, leaks of methane from various points where gas is mined, transported, exported, etc., and used in various power stations and so on. So many leaks at all the points that it probably produces more greenhouse effect than coal, which just produces carbon dioxide. And there's a very important sting in that tail, is that the methane, which is the greenhouse gas, is 75 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So we, when you, you leak from gas from your gas cooker, it starts acting immediately in the atmosphere because it's so powerful. And there's a sneaking suspicion amongst the IPCC and WHO that that's the cause of us not being able to control global warming at the moment. And that reason is very, very important indeed, because we've got to tackle gas immediately if that is so. So I am frightened by it, because I don't think anybody accepts the seriousness of that issue and is doing anything about it now. Australia is going to be the number one exporter in the world. That's their ambition, both parties. So you can see the size of the problem we've got uh, in controlling our government and by the world's atmosphere. I'm a bit gobsmacked because, uh, do you know what I've been most frightened about for years was a talk I heard by David Spratt about methane emissions from the Arctic when the permafrost is released and that was going to put the absolute kibosh on everything and now the thought that we would be willingly digging this stuff up and pumping it into the atmosphere, willingly doing it, you know, when we could... We could sure. say, put back the moratorium. We won't have it. There are countries that have banned. Well, let, let me explain. Yes. Let me explain the point you've raised, which is very important. The methane leaking leaking into the atmosphere, which is going to knock us to six in the next twenty years, comes from several sources. It is the thawing of the tundra in the Arctic. There are stores of it there. Secondly, it is from the bushfires around the world which are increasing and they tend to release methane from many of the oils and other substances in the trees and thirdly it comes from it comes from gas and if you look at the proportion of the methane which comes from each of these gas mining and delivery is by far the most important quantitatively yeah so the others are important. By the way, they're increasing, so it's a, it's a feedback mechanism. As the temperature goes up, more fires, more methane. Hmm. As the temperature goes up, more tundra melts, 
more methane into the atmosphere. So we're, in, we're into this sort of acceleration cycle. And now the gas industry and governments want to add to this fire by producing a lot more gas under the guise that it's a transition fuel and it's better than coal. Yeah. All, all I can say is that's rubbish. It is. And the, a lot of the listeners to this are in Melbourne and they'll know it's rubbish because they have got a moratorium on gas at yes. the moment. And I think, yes. as I said, I heard that from the voice of these people living in remote places. It's remote and I'm sure there's not a big population there. It's not as if it's Bentley, you know, on the coast of New South Wales where you can get 3,000 people by snapping your fingers and saying we're having a rally and the police yes. back off. Yes. You can't do that there because it's too remote. But so I think any listeners to this program, take note. The moratorium on gas in Northern Territory has been lifted. Health implications are huge. Um, and, and just the whole concept of making a place unlivable for us and for all the biodiversity there is really uh, criminal. Vivian, you're not immune in Victoria. <laughs> there, 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 is a, there is a development on your coast to bring in gas. Which uh, is being, which is at the community stage, which will be a will be a point of leakage, like every other time gas is introduced into a country. Oh, well. Not only that, Victoria will then carry pipelines for this gas around to places in the southern part of Australia, including one town in South Australia called Mount Barker, where it will be mandatory use gas in your new house. So that's the degree of infiltration of the gas industry mm. that has occurred. And uh, Victoria is, is going to, I suspect, allow it to be imported um, through its coastline. Well, uh, we'll have to finish up now, but I, I'd just like to tell you, yesterday at at Gloucester, where Professor Haswell was there and I, a lot of other people were there, we heard about the Rocky Hill decision, which yes. exactly was a judge saying, no, we can't have this coal mine because of the stage three, what did you say? Um, you know, the scope emissions. Scope emissions, that's right. The um, exported emission of this coal would be having an impact on climate change. And that's just one decision in one small place, but I think the legal community is starting to get really um, very interested in that and we may see... Let's hope that with the impact of, you know, voices like the Doctors of the Environment and other professional groups, scientists and other and all the community energy that's going into this at the moment, we can... Yes, it doesn't always work out that way because mm. human rights are ignored. But mm. one great hope is that fantastic community around Narrabri will manage to hold gas development at bay. That is terribly important. Mm. Because they put in so much work and so much effort. If they don't do it, I don't know that anyone else can. That's, mm. the, that's the issue. So good on you for being there. Oh, well, thank you for participating. <laughs> and thank you for all your articles. Listeners, this was, uh, we were listening to Dr. David Shearman. You can look up his name, David Shearman. He's got a lot of articles on the ABC website and uh, he publishes often in the, um, I see him in the Sydney Morning Herald articles. He's trying to bring his long experience, as you saw, as a tiny child in the uh, Second World War, bringing that experience to bear on this massive problem that's facing all of us. But so many people are trying to get their head around it now. Thank you for speaking to us. It's a pleasure for me to do so, Vanessa. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.